0: Hello, welcome to the show. My name's Zuki Stewart from Playfield. And I'm Lucy Taylor from Make Work Play. Together, we are Why Play Works, the podcast that speaks to people, radically reshaping the idea of work as play.
1: Today, I'm with Dr Heidi Edmondson, who has worked in the NHS for over 20 years, the last 10 of which as a consultant in emergency medicine at Whittington Health. She's a passionate advocate for NHS staff wellness and its importance with regards to the individual, the workforce and the patients they care for.
0: Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that the emergency department of a hospital doesn't exactly lend itself to creating a playful environment. But Heidi is a real trailblazer in using play and creativity as a means to facilitate wellness, build teams and help people find their voice. For the past six years, she's run dedicated playful sessions in her hospital, in which staff are encouraged to play games or take part in short creative tasks. In this conversation, we hear how
1: by engaging in these playful activities together, Heidi has seen her colleagues able to express their whole selves and connect to the humanity in themselves and others. So let's kick off. What does the word play mean to you? I think that is quite an interesting question. Um, And I have sort
2: of, I I think about this regularly. And I think I'm at a stage now, I suppose I associate play very much with the, the concept of creativity. And creativity is very important to me. So I think play is almost... The practical application of creativity or, or a practical way to access creativity, maybe is a better way to say it. Um, so I think, you know, this idea that you know people who don't think about creativity or a lot of people, I think think you just create creative people just wake up and are creative and they just wake up and are being creative, going about their lives, you know, coming up with ideas. And actually, I think a lot of creative people would tell you that in order to sort of access that creativity, you need to go through a process. And play really is the way to um, access that. I suppose another way is it's a kind of safe way to access or to explore concepts and ideas. So it's sort of like it's a safe way of doing that. There's something about it being relaxed. So I think if you're put under pressure to do anything, a lot of people, lots of people think they work well under pressure. But actually, if you're really trying to access something new or different, I think you work better on a kind of relaxed um, atmosphere. The other thing I would probably say is, more particularly, what play isn't, and I think this is quite important, is it's not childish. Because I think but it, might be ch- like children, or it might be something like children or might be something childlike, but I think it's not a childish thing. And I think this is maybe where people get anxious about the word play because they associate it with being childish. And actually, it's maybe childlike in a positive way, but it, it it shouldn't have those negative connotations where people sort of say, stop being
1: so childish. And what about you? You've said that creativity is very important to you personally. Yeah. So if play is the way you access that, when did you last feel playful? I could almost answer these questions to the... <laughs>
0: <laughs> the
2: time was quite interesting. So uh, I probably in my my private life I sort of sort of one of the ways I accessed this was I belonged to two kind of creative writing forums uh, run by two very inspirational women um, called Diane Samuels and Claire Steele, and they have both they both use a similar techniques, um, which is very much this idea of, of of encouraging creative writing through playing with words, word games you know, they facilitate group sessions where you're given you know you each start off with a word to play with and then you swap phrases and they very much encourage this kind of playful um, approach to words in, in order to access creat- your creativity in writing so so that that's sort of one aspect I suppose um, other ways I do it, um, I did run a workshop at, at work last week or two weeks ago, um, which was again using this kind of uh, playful techniques, playing games. So I suppose that that, that was, you know, I specifically like that. I think as well, you, you just feel and your your own, you know, if you get together, you know, I sort of said at the beginning or when we were talking earlier, you know, I just went home for a week. So I caught up with, with two of my school friends. I think the kind of conversations you have are playful. You you joke, you, you make good. You know, but it's that kind of really lovely, lively, playful conversations you can have with good friends that are important.
1: I completely agree. And I think what's lovely as well is thinking about how you could be doing something playfully. And it doesn't need to be a playful activity. You can be queuing at the post office, but it's a kind of mindset or a way of moving through the world, isn't it? You can be playful or not playful and dial it up and down depending on how you feel. But you don't have to be doing a playful activity to be playful in 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 your spirit. So we often think about play and work. I think we've been conditioned to believe that they are opposites. You know, you work hard, you play hard, they, they, they're not meant to meet. How do you think play and work relate to each other?
2: Well, I, I think they are important because I, th- I think probably the misconceptions are that somehow or other, this idea, if you're at work, you have to be serious. Your work is a serious thing. And play is is not a serious thing. So <laughs> and, and and I think one of the when I first started trying to introduce this concept of playfulness, you know, I, one of the ways that you know, one of the first talks I did, I called it the serious business of fun, because I actually think there, there's an element that that you know, fun and, and playfulness are, are very important, and they're very important to access a lot of qualities that I think are very important for, for whatever job you do. Um, so in... My context, if I'm a doctor, I work in the emergency department, I think, you, do, you know, if you, if you do access that playful side of yourself, it does put you in touch with your own humanity. It puts you in this empathetic side. It puts you in touch with the, the bit of you that you need to connect to people. And and sometimes you know, and sometimes even people like you to to you know, people want connection. That that is what people want. Everybody wants connection. So patients want connections. When you're working with people, they they want to connect. Um, and I I sort of think within work, I think it's something about these questions I sort of ask myself a lot now, and I, and I bring up in conversations, you know, what is the culture of a workplace? What sort of culture do you want? And I think something that keeps on coming up more and more is this idea you want a culture that is relational, not transactional. And I think that is important in a lot of workplaces and I think it's also important in the NHS. So I think this kind of playful and connection, they, they all link in to be able to connect with other people and to forge relationships. So I think that 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 is why it is important. And it's important in my workplace, which the, those relationships are important both with your colleagues, but also with the kind of therapeutic relationship with patients um, and I imagine it is important in all other relation or all other workplaces. It's this idea of building relationships. I think also the relationship with with play and work it's also as I said, before, creativity is is associated and connected with this, and it's actually creativity is very important I would say in problem solving. And I think all workplaces—we've we've gone through a lot. I think in the last couple of years with the pandemic, you know, we, we've really had to stand up and think. Oh my goodness, our whole lives changed. Our whole way we viewed things. So actually, there is something important even continuing to move on, h- how we find new ways of doing things. And actually, play is also, again, associated with creativity. And that, that is associated with problem solving. So I think that's such that's a relevance to, to any any workplace, really.
1: Absolutely. There's something very, very human about play. Yeah. Or, or, or even very, maybe <laughs> you'd say mammalistic, because you see animals playing as yeah. well, don't you? But there's something very deeply human in how we do it. And we, we, we've, we've put it in this box as belonging to children and for childhood. Yeah. And then, it, you know, that box should be put on the shelf. But actually, if you can bring that box down and start to use it in work, it, it's, it accesses something in us that, that, that doesn't get invited out when we, when we keep it up on that shelf.
2: I think maybe another way with work is the other thing that I sometimes say is people have sort of took, begun to look at play. It's a bit like dessert. <laughs> you're only allowed to get it. You know, you're only allowed <laughs> it out when the, when the serious work of dinner has been taken care of. Yes. And then if you're a very good person and there's you know, there, you've been good and you've been well behaved and there's a little bit of time left at the end, you're allowed to dessert. And, and I think, you know, I sometimes say it, it's
1: it's more than that. It should be, you know, it should be there all the time. Oh, I love that. I can't promise I'm not going to Take that and run with it, because we talk about how this idea that we have to earn it, we have to earn the right to be selfish and to be playful, and and that's not the case. So we, you already mentioned some of this, but I'd love to hear a bit more about what what do you think we really misunderstand about play in the context of work? So you mentioned that at the moment we really do kind of dismiss it as being frivolous or childish. So what are we missing out on in your view when we do sort of diminish it in that way? So I think play is an important
2: aspect of problem solving because it connects to creativity and that connects to this concept of finding a, a new solution to a problem and i think sometimes people are scared to enter into any of this this sort of playfulness to look for solutions so you end up having quite serious conversations but all that really happens quite often is you you recycle the same solution over and over and over again so quite often you you're not finding a new solution and i think being playful does lead you to find a, a new solution and there's something about if you think about when you were a child and you played there's an element you go into a zone where you're just, you know, you're making connections, you're linking things that you wouldn't automatically have linked before. You're finding ways of doing something. You know, you can give a group of children a set of boxes and you can leave them to it and then you'll come back and they'll have created a whole different world with those boxes. And it's that ability to take something that you've got and re it in a different way. It's something you do when you're playful. And it's also what you need to do if you need to think your way forward in into a situation. But I think this is a huge thing for, for everybody in the workplace at the moment because we're all trying to come to terms with where we are in the world and, and how to move forward after everything we've been through. So I think that that's one way. I think in stressful workplaces, and again, The NHS is a stressful workplace, but then many workplaces are are stressful workplaces. There's a lot of conversations around how you can get people to de-stress. And one of the ones that comes up a lot is is, is meditation. And people will say, you know, go home, practice mindfulness. And mindfulness, you know, obviously works and it works for a lot of people, but, but it doesn't work for everybody. It's not completely easily accessible. But actually, we know that if you engage in these kind of just what you might call any kind of slightly playful activities or creative activities they they, they act the same as mindfulness, and we all know this and you know it's why lots of people find solace in baking or cooking because it's you you just are focused on the present, and it's an it's a very easy and accessible way to focus in in the present that 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 a lot of people will find easier to do than actually practice mindfulness. Um, and also because it's associated with other things. You know, if you start to laugh, because quite often you're that playful and you start laughing, you know, laughter is as they will have gone to one of the most healthy things that you can do for yourself. It is have you know, having it is really, really very healthy. It it reduces cortisol, it increases like serotonin bonding hormones, increases your pain threshold. So it's a really healthy thing to do. So when it's a very cheap and easy and accessible way to get people to to laugh and do it. I think also in the context of learning, you know, if so if you're in any kind of sort of environment where you're trying to get people to learn or, or learn new things, they have shown that if you laugh or uh, funds involved, you're, you're sort of much more likely to change your behavior. So I think that's, you know, very, very important. Um and there is something fun theory, which is they try to make things fun. So they they talk about the very good example of this is in Sweden. In one of the underground stations, they wanted people to use the stairs, not the escalator. And people, obviously, you could put up as many notices as you wanted. People ignored them. Um, but then they, they turned the stairs into a big grand piano that played music as you walked up and down it. So it became a fun thing to do. And, and stereo sheets increased by 66%. So. If you are trying to do something to get people to change their behaviour, they, they are much more likely to do it if you make it a fun thing rather than a deadly serious thing. Um, and I think all of these are, are things that people will spend a lot of time thinking in your workplace, how do I do these? But then again, you people sort of dismiss fun Um and again, another thing I was like to say, it's a victim of its own success because nobody takes it seriously. <laughs> because you just go, <laughs> like, you know, "Well, we're not going to use it, but, you know, we can't make it fun. We have to take this as a serious thing." And, and actually, they, they just keep on discounting it.
1: I've heard you say that as a as a doctor, you couldn't initially you couldn't see where creativity had a place in your working life. And you've mentioned your own creative writing pursuits. So for you personally, it's always been very important, but before you didn't see how it fitted into your work life and could inform your working practice. Can you tell me about what happened to change your mind on that?
2: Yeah, so I suppose that the, the sort of, the first thing that, that happened was, the, the first way it sort of accessed it was this concept of communication. So um, back in... 2013. Now, I I was very lucky that I did a communication course that it was a sort of a pilot and it was being arranged by St. John's Hospice and Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. So it's looking very much at dramatic methods in improving communication. And it was based on the sort of principle you know, if you're a great actor, you are a great communicator. That's what all great actors do. So I, I sort of I did this course and, and because it was a pilot, it was once a week on Wednesday nights for six weeks. So obviously, actors and actresses they use a lot of games. You <laughs> know, they they do not get to where they are by coming in and sitting and being deadly serious. You know, having PowerPoint's. You know, there's a lot of it. You listen up. You, you do so. So that that became very much a part of it. And on the very last session of this, they talked about a style of theatre called forum theatre, which I became. It, it just resonated with the first time I heard about it and it's a style of theater which was created really in the 50s by a man called Augustus Boal who was at the time in Brazil and it was really using theater to explore insoluble problems and drive social change so it wasn't as a, as a matter of entertainment and you know they, they they used he used it in in Brazil which was sort of for, for political reasons they were under a very right wing junta at the time but it can be taken in lots of context, and the way it works is you create a small uh, sort of piece, which you know uh, you can show to a community, and, and they will. The, the lead character in this, people will identify with them for many reasons, and actually, the lead character ends up in this set piece doing badly, not not getting what they want, being crushed by the system, and then in the theatre piece, you a member of the the sort of company gets the audience to really discuss what they've seen. So the member of the company is a facilitator and he gets people to discuss and it keeps on asking the question, could that person have have behaved differently to change things? And then after the discussion, you replay the piece, but you invite the audience up to be the lead character and they try to get people to to, to change their behaviour. And it, it's more than role play because everybody in the, in the cast has, has prepared for it. And they're prepared for it again, go back to fun, through games. through a lot of these acting techniques. They believe in the character that they're playing and why that character's believe it, behaving that way. But it's very much that if you really work at it, sometimes you can just do something and that person will change. So it's, it's a very playful way of exploring problems. So, so really... To begin with this resonated with me, and I became very invested in this and I'm very interested in it. And then I was lucky enough to um, really do several workshops that that we did in, in the sort of in the department, the first was the cardboard citizens Forum theater company, which is sort of a charity homeless charity, but they're sort of a professional company who do it, and then we did some others with the central school of Speech and drama and and we worked on that and then we did quite big projects in that. But then, when I got to the stage, when I really began to think of well-being, and I wanted to bring it in, and could I, how, how could I sort of really focus on that? I had noted that, particularly even doing the warm-up games, and a lot of these these games that that sort of do, do in theatre environments, which were maybe alien to somebody from a very scientific medical background. But these games are to just get people to relax and to energize them and connect with each other. And I suppose one of the things that's to turn individuals into an ensemble cast. And I'd really felt that actually, during all these workshops and we were doing these, people loved playing these games. You, You just laughed and they were back to being a child again. People really connected and they were one of the things that people loved doing. So... When I was at the stage of I wanted to introduce more, something to do with well-being into the workplace, but I didn't want to just talk about it. I wanted to make it a real thing. I realized, basically, I was sort of always looking for places or ways to do it, and I realized we had 10-minute teaching slots every day, which we, we were very clinical. We talked about a guideline, et cetera. But these teaching slots, some of them were empty. So I thought, well, I could take some of these over and do something about well-being and then I thought actually we could just play one of these games or two of these games in that 10 minutes and then begin to see how it goes so, so that was really the start of bringing them into the workplace and trying to get people to just do them at the start of the day will they connect people at the start of the shift will they do that and really from that that I suppose really it was about getting the games to get people to connect with themselves and each other uh, in a very Sort of way that made them laugh and an energising way, just to see if, if that could be brought into, to, to, you know, as as part of the day to day, or maybe not. wasn't as much as every day, but it was part of the kind of fabric or the pattern of the workplace.
1: That's exactly it, isn't it? It's often the challenge um, to to do exactly that to bring it into more of the day to day practice that you're talking about. It's easier as a as an organization to say oh we like this idea of more playful ways of working or you know let's let's spend a half day doing this together and it's all great and you see amazing things happen and then it's back to business as usual the next day and it sort of doesn't live on so how can you really weave it into as you say the fabric of the task the day-to-day um, ways of working is it's not an easy feat but it sounds like you've, you've made some amazing progress on that and could you give some examples of some of the results that you've seen kind of working with this idea of playfulness with, you know, teams of doctors and nurses and other medical staff, what what have you seen kind of come out of, of those those playful practices with those teams in terms of results and impact?
2: Well, I suppose there's, there's several things. So I have always taken feedback from it. And then probably the, the time I was able to get the most interesting bit of feedback was we, we were doing it for 10 minutes once a week and then back in 2018 it was pre-pandemic so we got 110 members of staff were given a day and and that actually gives a piece of cohesive feedback and that was spread over February and March and really what what we did at the end of that day we we asked people to there's a thing called the Edinburgh Warwick Wellness Score so we just said can you score yourselves Um, it's out of 10 the full Score has fourteen positively worded sort of describers of well-being. We use seven because they were applicable to today, and it like how energized do you feel, how connected do you feel, how cheerful do you feel, and we asked everybody to um, score themselves. And over eighty percent scored themselves eight or more out of ten, so that that was that was quite impressive. And in something like I think cheerfulness, you know, thirty-three percent, which is a third, gave themselves ten out of ten. So sometimes I think, oh, well, if I never achieve anything else in my life for one day, I missed, <laughs> you know, one day, you know, during that time, people were 10 out of 10 and cheerful. Um, somebody then said, well, did it affect sickness rates? Again, I thought, mm, I don't know. But when we looked at sickness rates that Those days were held in February and March. We looked at sickness rates in April and we compared them to the year before and the sickness rates were reduced by 33%. Now, again, you can never say that that was due to those days. There's so many variables, but I still think it was an interesting thing to pick up. um, And I think it is worth looking at a bit more closely. Um, So I think that was having very, if you like, quantitative data or or some measurable data, which is what people want (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when they ask you to have <laughs> to do they want you to Preach. say, everybody wants you to say, <laughs> I can tell you, it, it's it's this quantitative data. I think as time goes on, though, sometimes I think, again, it goes back to this idea, you know, is this relational or is it transactional? Because quantitative data is a little bit transactional. And we do this and we get this back. Relational wise, I remember after doing those days, and, and that was with my own team of, of people that I know quite well, I then, by a whole sequence of events, ended up doing it as part of a workshop at a, at a conference, which was, I think, the Academy of Medical Educators in Cardiff in 2018. And I'd sort of agreed to do this as a workshop. Uh, and I really, as the time grew close, I was very anxious about this. Um, and the, I remember it was held in, um, it was in Cardiff, so it was in their sort of big art, you know, drama and music college. So... I went down to do it, and I remember being really anxious before I, I had to do it. And we went upstairs, and I was actually in a drama studio. So I remember thinking, "If there's ever... <laughs> it was like almost a nightmare of imposter syndrome because suddenly I was finding myself in a drama studio doing this drama workshop, and this little voice in my head is going, "But you're a doctor. What, what are you doing here? And um, the, the room beside me, all all the studios were named after very m. Um, sort of famous uh, Welsh performers. I, 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 the one beside me was the Shirley Bassey. <laughs> so I remember thinking, right. <laughs> I was still in that room, though I have to channel my inner <laughs> Shirley Bassey kind of data now. I, and everybody came into the room. And, and these were people I, I did not know. I had never met any of these people. They'd wow. all signed up for this workshop. There's this sort of 15 people. One of my people I worked with had come with me. And thankfully she was in the room, sort of take photos and, and Sort of helped me out a bit, and it was it was very stressful, and, and I could actually see some people were a bit. like, What are you talking about? But by the end of it, they had all bonded, and and one of them said to me, "It's very powerful." I I thought it was a load of nonsense, but it it really works, and and I think. Since I've done workshops, I see that again and again and again, and, and there is just something wonderful about standing in a room full of everybody laughing, and and you do see at the end of that time, people will bond, people will connect, you you will begin to see something happening between people when you do it. The other example I think of a time at worked is a very strange example, and maybe this is um, my own positive self talk coming, but um, I I did it with our our nursing staff. Um, one one day I just it was just a this was just a short one of the short 10 minute sessions at work and at the end of it uh, one of the members of staff said to me I, I really think it's nice that you're trying to do this to help us but I just think it's a load of rubbish <laughs> so you know, Girl, I, obviously thanks. this is no 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 What you want to hear uh, and, and you think okay and I said okay and I didn't, and I said, I said that's fine. You were allowed to think it's a load of rubbish. You know, yes. that, that's a, you know people are allowed to think that. And then he, we sat in, in that room and then he talked to me for quite a long period of time. And he said, I'm really fed up. You know, I'm disillusioned. I'm this, on uh, a whole lot of reasons. And I, and I don't want to, I've decided I'm going to give up my job for a while. I don't want to, but this is what I think needs to be done. And he told me everything. And then we talked about it. And we talked for about 45 minutes. And then I went back to my office, and I remember thinking, "Oh well, <laughs> you can't win them all," kind of idea. And I thought, well, again, this goes back to this idea, this desire to measure, and you want to measure, and you want to see my measure is it works, and everybody's happier. But you know, I'm not saying I'm making people happier. You know, and I know it sort of goes back to this idea: that you can't make individuals happy. And and actually, really, I thought, well, actually, maybe. Well, as a sort of measure, it only hasn't worked if I'm only measuring and making people happy. But then if I look at it another way and say, you know, th- this is a, a you know member of staff. It is somebody who is theoretically junior to me. But obviously I had created an environment where they felt comfortable enough to say to me, what, you doing <laughs> it's a complete waste of time and stupid. Uh-huh. And actually that, you know, this comes into this concept of the workplace where they talk a lot about psychological safety. Do you feel comfortable speaking up? Do you feel comfortable that you'll be listened to? And I thought, well, actually, maybe, maybe this is a sign that it does work because, actually, you know that that's what you really want. You, you know, you, you nobody can make everybody happy every moment of every day, and actually, we don't want to make people happy all the time. That's that's not how you grow in life or move forward. You know, nobody can go on. You know, f- what you're looking for is is creating an environment or a culture for people fail feel able to just be honest and open and people feel able to confront things. So I thought, actually, I think in its own odd way, although that wasn't determined it was a load of rubbish, I felt like after saying, well, you know, it's not as big of a load of rubbish as you think it is, because if it was that much a load of rubbish, you wouldn't have been sitting there telling me it was a load of rubbish, you'd have just gone out of the room. So, so, so I think sometimes I think that was, in its own odd way, one of the biggest signs to me that it works.
1: I really love that because in our work, my Napoleon's work with with Playfield, as you say, people want quantitative data. They want to say, you know, what percentage increase am I gonna see in this KPI and that metric? And you know what, I absolutely get it. And and I want to be able to give that information and, and that data. But so much of this is intangible and very difficult to quantify and package up. And what we often find is play and engaging in playfulness between colleagues and between just humans, other people, it won't always lead to one outcome. It will be different depending on the individual and the group. And as you say, it can be that they just had a great time in that moment and it was a moment of mindfulness, as you said. It can be that they've connected with someone. It can be that you've created that environment of psychological safety. It can be that it just starts a conversation that that wouldn't have started otherwise. You can't say, do this and you'll get that outcome, which is, I think, amazingly powerful and magical, but can also be quite challenging to almost kind of convince someone else because they want to know what's going to happen if I do this. And it's a little bit, I'm not quite sure. It's—it's. It's, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a good thing, but you know, it might be a, a seed that is planted or a conversation that has had that might not have happened before, but you can't dictate and channel it in one particular way.
2: And that's sometimes, I, I think the answer, you know, sometimes I've even heard say, okay, well, what if nothing happens? Okay, but what if we do it and absolutely nothing happens? Because the reality is, you know, you have to say, does every single other thing that I've ever done in the workplace has it always produced something happening? You know, and, and I think I think that is quite an important thing that I've had to start vocalising. Um, or, or something else that, that I quite liked, that I sort of, uh, a slide that I use at the end of talks comes from a few years ago, I stayed in Venice and it was um, outside my hotel room, on the other side of the Grand Canal, there was a, a sort of statue, there was quite a, a a big statue of a, what looked like a man holding out and ruler up to the sky, and I sort of I saw it every day, and it was very striking. And you think, "Of oh, what is that?" So I, I googled it, um and it, it, I found out it's called the man who measures the clouds. And, and actually, what they they sort of already said was that was a kind of his idea of how do you measure the unmeasurable. And his sort of uh, the answer was it was creativity is how you measure the unmeasurable. And I think there is something again to do with that. You know, we we are in the world of the intangible, and you know, I'm you know. On one hand, I understand the need for metrics and evidence, but I also think you have to also understand that not everything can be measured, but it shouldn't be automatically discounted, <laughs> if, because our measures haven't become good enough to measure it. You know, and, and how do you measure that people have connected? How do you measure that people stood up and said something that they wouldn't normally have said? How do you measure that people felt a bit braver? And it's the same way you don't come out of the theatre and, and immediately say, well, I, I saw King Lear and that has made me reassess my role as a father. <laughs> that, that is not how these things work. So, So I think it's finding the balance but between those two
1: worlds really Ah, oh, yes preach I could let yeah. you continue on on that yeah, train yeah. all day I couldn't agree more but you, you mentioned um, a little earlier about your own kind of experience of bringing more playfulness into you know the medical profession and the medical environments and that's been a bit of a journey by the sounds of it that you had moments of real anxiety and nervousness around doing this uh, which I absolutely empathize with, but that you've grown in confidence the more you've done. I'd love to hear more about, yes, your own journey as a leader in bringing play into the workplace and, and how that's felt. I think it
2: felt, um, I started, as I say, doing the, the 10 at 10 sessions. Um, so that was 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, as I've always said, the you know, the very first time I did that and I came up with that idea, I was working at the time with one of our um, practice development nurses, uh, who, had, who had done the workshop, so she knew the games. And, and I, was, I said to her, will you do the games? And she said, yes. And I remember the night before, you know, I, I was quite restless because I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this tomorrow. Am I mad? I had this idea. I, I made her go in and do it, and I didn't do it. <laughs> and I sat in the department slightly hyper-anxious, thinking something's going to happen, and then I'm going to have to explain that I've sent people around the back to, to play a game. And I, and I was very anxious, and then it all happened, and everybody came out, and they were laughing, and and it was fine. So I started to do it, and then, as I say, I did the the days where we got, you know, we did it as days, and we got everybody, you know, a day each, and that was that was sort of a, as part of the study days. And um, then I, I did I did it at a conference, so that that was very much the first time I went somewhere new and did it with a group of people I didn't really know before and had never met before, and so I just. Then I used that and I designed a a kind of workshop, a half day workshop that I did for the organization. And, and then again I got different new people. I was I began to be asked to different organizations to do it. So each time I got better, I got more comfortable doing it. I got better. I, I suppose I began to believe in it a bit more. So I mean, I think I was, you know, to begin with, I was always anxious that it would be it would be awful and it wouldn't work. And then people <laughs> would be I don't know it's the awful and then I, I just began to trust myself a bit more each time I did it and I, I began to do that I also think the other way I had to grow with it was I had to change it and adapt it so it was very much to begin with a lot of, of game playing Um when the pandemic hit obviously I remember that at the very beginning thinking well this is no you know, I can't do this in a pandemic kind of idea. This is, you know, it's all very well talking about well being, but now we're well being in the midst of this, you know, huge pandemic, and and I didn't really know how to proceed. And then I thought, well, I do have to do something. Um, at that time, I decided I, I wouldn't do games for several reasons. What, what a main one being they require people to be very close together, and obviously you have to socially distance. So there was there was a there was an element that you couldn't do that. Um. But but what I was able to do was uh, you know I, I read the british psychological society had had guidelines of how to support your team in a pandemic and one of them was create a space where people can can feel open about expressing how they feel so what I was able to do is I was able to run the, the well-being sessions for where, where people could be sort of sort of spaced and, and ask people to talk about how they felt and then what i I, I did it you know i short period of time, but what I got people to do was draw how they felt. So again, that that continued that same kind of, of playfulness, really. And actually, you find out that, that drawing how you feel, you know, it was very powerful. Pe- people people sometimes were able to express much more eloquently in their pictures than they were in words, how they felt. And actually, if you, if you suddenly drew a picture and then everybody looked at it, it, it seemed to be able to resonate in a way that that sometimes words didn't resonate, and it was a very interesting way of doing it. So, so I, I, I did that. Um, that that was really during the first wave of the pandemic. The second wave of the pandemic, which I'd probably say around December, you know, December twenty 2020, twenty, January twenty twenty one. In the emergency department, we were very busy then, and and we we couldn't even we could we the, the, the things had changed again, so we couldn't really have everybody to go and and even have these. 20 minutes to sit and do that. That that wasn't even possible. But I still think I tried to bring that sort of connection into the day. And I, st- I started by at the beginning of the shift, just, just the really simple thing that became very powerful of just getting people to take on their mask for a moment, say their name and what their role was in the department. And there was something again about that slight connecting with each other that became... It I felt very important to people just just that you started the day off connecting and and you made it you you see if you you held a space for about you know two minutes to get people to connect um and and I do as time's gone on I've, I've done that I've, I've maintained doing that now whenever I start a shift then it's my I do that with people um and sometimes. You know, I I will throw out these kind of icebreaker questions as well to get people to talk about. If you one last meal on Earth, date, what would it be, etc. And I think these questions are quite interesting to ask. People. You know, it's a slightly playful way to start the day, but you know, the, you you do get to, you know, getting people to talk about food anyway. Is <laughs> it's really a you know, very emotive way to get people to bond. Um, I think. I read an interview with you know, Grace Dent, who does the, that podcast, Comfort Food, and you should gets celebrities to talk. And she said, you know, if you get people to talk about food, it takes them somewhere very quickly that actually getting them to talk about other things, you know, you do bond. So so I've tried to introduce little things like that, um, you know, d- during the time of moving forward and constantly trying to find ways of both it into bigger things. So I now you know, I created a, a device with a communications course. So I bring a lot of it into that. So there's something about bringing it into that arena and, and changing it slightly, but also finding little teeny tiny
1: ways to just get it into your daily day-to-day activities. I think there's so much you shared there around this idea of starting with quite small steps. So it's not that you woke up one morning and thought, right, this is, this is my mission and I'm going to go gung-ho. It was much more about, you know, you do a course, you do a session, you, you kind of you're taking small steps, you're experimenting as you go. So that's something kind of heartening to hear. And I also heard there about putting yourself out of your comfort zone was key. There are times of real anxiety, as you were saying, not sure of how it be received, but to kind of put yourself um, out of your comfort zone and also getting feedback as to how it is landing for people. And as you say, you're never gonna please other people at the time, but being led by people asking for it and, and and getting that feedback to kind of take you further on the journey. And also this idea of adapting to what is needed at the time and I love that idea of when you're faced with the challenges of the pandemic, you couldn't just continue as is, but you could adapt and still bring in the principles. And I love that you kind of create even a small amount of time and space th- for this connection stuff. <laughs> that, that's what's really powerful from what you've said it's it it can just be a few minutes or a micro practice of taking your mask down and saying your name, but the impact can be really outsized. But I think so many learnings from what you've just shared there of your own, your own journey. And what do you think are, the conditions for play to happen what needs to be in place for true play to occur in an organizational setting do you think
2: again you know I remember before I started to do this <laughs> let me rewind even before I had the idea to start to do this, I remember there was a vogue for a period of time that, that we were being told in the NHS we should be more like it was Google. <laughs> they always, you know, Google are like, they are the organisation that I think everybody thinks of. You're right, Play. everyone wants Google. Like, oh, everybody yes. everybody <laughs> references Google. And I mean, the NHS would be more like Google. And then you'd have immediately start talking about, you know, the way Google looks, the big slide. You know, there's always that picture of the big slide as, as a reference. They've got the big slide, um, and and the canteen where everybody wants to be. So we'd all sit around and talk about Google and be at this well, it's all for Google, but they've got the big slide, et cetera. Um, and then you would just completely discount the idea. Now, I do believe environment is important. So <laughs> I'm not saying don't focus on your environment. I think environment is very important. And I think, again, in somewhere like the NHS, there, there's a lot being done about trying to improve the, the environment. But probably what I would also say is, yes, I think that's a good thing to work on. But I don't think you should think that has to be in place before you can start bringing in play. Really, because I think if you sort of think, oh well, we don't have the we don't have the big slide and all those things and um, and the brightly coloured seats, then then there's absolutely no point until we get those. So we're just gonna give up on this idea. I think is important. You know, I think probably after time this is something a quite clear idea. I think you need somebody to um, champion it, at least one person. I think you need to, if you are championing it, decide you're going to hold a time and a space to do it in and I think you need to say we, we will hold a time and a space to do it in and I think there's something about actually standing up and saying I am holding this time and this space now and I'm doing it in this point point. and if, if all you've got is two minutes then all you've got is two minutes then then stand up and hold that two minutes. I think there's something as time's gone on I've sort of begun to understand that something I didn't really understand before, but I've begun to understand more and more the, the role of a facilitator. And I think that was something that I never, maybe if you rerun the clock, completely thought about or understood. But I think you need to hold a time and space, and I think you need a facilitator to then to then run the session. <laughs> because I think that's it needs to be a, a facilitated session, really. Um and I think the facilitator themselves, they need to believe in what they're doing kind of idea. So, so, for example, you know, one of the things that I did along with the taking down the, the masks in the morning is I asked the night team that are leaving to tell me two positive things about the night shift. And as I say, I think that's a really good thing to do because I think it's important that people go home with a positive memory. But you have to believe in on that question, because if you sort of say, all right, well, they're all looking like it's been a dreadful night. And you go, OK, well, just tell me two good things. You know, it's not going to work. You have to really sit there and have the, have the confidence to say, OK, I know this has been really dreadful for you and you're not going to want to do this. And you're going to start off by resisting me. But let's all take a nice deep breath and just give me. And you have to be a bit playful when you do it. People will give you one thing and you say, come on, dig deep one other thing and 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 do it. And I think it's the same with all these practices. So if you everybody's there and they're stressed and you say, right, we're going into a room now and we're playing a game, you have to be prepared that in the room and in the group, some people will be, yes, I want to play the game. Other people will be anxious. Some people will be angry. And you actually have to really just go, we're going to do this. And, and I believe that if we do this together, we will come out the other end and, and it will, it will be, um, you know, you, you will, you will feel better if you like in in doing this. So I think probably what you need is you need to decide you're going to do it. You need somebody to champion it. You need to be very clear. You're holding a time and space to do it and you'll do it regularly. You need to believe in it. <laughs> when you're, you need to have, to have that person to facilitate it or have a facilitator who believes in it. And you have to, Except that you know, some days it will work better than others. Some days it will not seem to work at all, other days it will really work stunningly well, and then some days it'll be somewhere in between. But I think you know I think that that's what you need to you need to sort of have to to get it into
1: the workplace. And just as we start to move towards the end of a lovely conversation, are you able to share a playful practice that you use in your work and or perhaps with others at work? that our listeners sitting at home could think about trying in the workplace a small micro-practice or behaviour?
2: Certainly. So, so what I would vo- first of all say is, I'm a believer now, if you're doing this, you, you need to to open it. <laughs> so you, you So so quite often if I'm doing anything, I will open it by, by going round, getting everybody to stand in a circle and, and go round or sit in a circle if you're in a room and just say their name, uh, a number out of 10 and how they're feeling. Um they can expand upon it or they can't they can if you don't want to sometimes you can add in you know uh, you can you a know, kind of variations in that and you can say if you were a type of weather what sort of weather would you be? sometimes you can use that to ask your if you'd one last meal on earth to eat what would do but I think it's very important to ask that sort of question and get everybody to say their name and on how they're feeling and this is interesting because quite often what happens is... In a lot of groups, you will find there is one surprisingly happy person in that group, <laughs> which which takes everybody, even myself, because to be honest, I normally am starting off a six and a seven, but there will be some surprisingly person will say, "Well, I'm I'm a nine, or I'm, and everybody will look at them and think, "Oh my goodness, you know how, who, what what is it on?" If somebody's a four. They will say, I'm a four, and everybody, and I think even being being able to say, I'm a four, and everybody looking at them sympathetically is, is quite a good level. So, so I think it's quite important that you go in and you say, right, this is where we are. And I think it sets the scene, we're now in the world of feelings, that that's what we do. Then what I do, which is very interesting, is I personally, and I, I have a great belief in this, I get people to shake. So I get everybody to stand up, and I get them to follow me, and I shake one hand five times, the other five times. One leg five times, the other leg five times, and clap. And I go five, four, three, two, one. And you know, it was it was I saw somebody else do this. It was, it was the nurse I used to work on, Jo, when we did it, she she had found it from somewhere. Uh, and and there was something quite magical happened about that process when you, you watched people go and do that. And there was something about the clapping and the noise, and, and you really felt it took you from one place into another place. And then I read after we'd been doing it that shaking is a very healthy thing to do. I think somebody's written a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's all to do with shaking is a kind of an animal practice to when animals are stressed or when zebras are chased by a lion, the first thing they do is they shake and that sort of recalibrates the kind of hypothalamus pituitary function. So actually there is a scientific basis to it and then around the same time i read about and there was some kind of shaking yoga and then somebody said oh yeah my girlfriend did the shaking yoga but they get a lot of shaking them so so i i do that so i i talk about that quite a lot um then i think one of the sort of next steps practices to do is if you want to uh, it's the drawing one that i, I sometimes find is a, an easy one and again what, what i do is i always start off by saying you can draw um, but you you know, pick something simple, we always pick a cat because <laughs> it's a sort of simple shape. And also because I work at the Whittington, it's a cat as our like uh, logo kind of thing because they do your mascot. So I'm um, it's getting very interesting because you, you get people draw a cat with your dominant hand and then draw it with your non-dominant hand and then draw it with your eyes closed. And that's quite an interesting one to take people through because lots of people are scared of drawing and, and they're scared of being drawing. They're scared of being judged. They're scared of not being able to do something. They're scared of it looking silly. So they're always a bit nervous. And actually, when you draw with your non-dominant hand, it does seem to free you from that a bit. And although your drawings are a bit more wobbly and crooked or they seem to level everybody's drawings out and also people they just seem to be more alive and more quirky so then as soon as people do that they relax into it and then you can say and you can draw with your eyes closed and then that leads to this whole just series of almost surreal castle looking we call them cats and it's all all strange and i like that so I think that's just a, you know and anybody can do that you just need a pen and a paper and then if you do that I've sometimes taken it on from you know draw me what you know how you're feeling today or or draw me and you can do it with your right hand your left and you can decide you you can play around with that you know draw me if you if there's something you want at this moment um you know one year i did it you know i did it once sometimes i was asked to do a workshop and it was it wasn't this christmas but it was the one before and it was draw me what you want for christmas and then there was there was there was quite a lovely, then people were talking about them. There's this lovely range of drawings from somebody just wanted COVID to go away. <laughs> that was somebody's drawing. And then somebody else wanted um, a glug jug. And everybody's going, What's that? It's one of those jugs that glug, but there's something quite sweet about this idea that again, you all these little things that people share, they become very connecting and bonding, and they're just a kind of, of starting point. And everybody laughs and everybody relaxes. So I, I think that's a very simple way. And, and you could do that at the beginning of any, you could do that at the beginning of just any meeting it will take about five to 10 minutes. And then you can move in to discussing what you need to move into in the meeting, but it's just, it's just moved you into a slightly different way of doing it
1: really. Absolutely. The, the words you used just now, which I love were to move you from one place into another. That's exactly what play does. Um, And it's beautiful wording. I want to continue, but I'm going to respect your time and stop the conversation there it's been such a pleasure such an enlivening and heartening and warming
0: conversation with you Heidi thank you so much for your time today no problem it's been lovely speaking to you too I really liked this idea of fun and playfulness as ways of accessing qualities that are important to what you do and she was talking about how as a doctor you know it's that it's the humanity, and it's the the ability to connect with patients, with each other, that is so important. And also just just the bravery of doing something like this in a setting where it's not the obvious thing. Yeah, I love how she saw and felt and acknowledged that creativity was important
1: to her as a as a person. Um, she talks about her creative writing as a as a sort of practice, and how she really thought, how can creativity this important thing to me inform my work and enrich my practice in my
0: kind of professional world so I love the, the bridge that she built for herself I loved when she was describing playing games at the start of a shift to help people connect um you know that's so simple and the, this 10 I think it wasn't every day it was like once a week sometimes but just bringing it into she described it as the fabric and the pattern of work and the impact of that I just thought was amazing. And you know, the, the effect of just simply removing your mask and showing each other your faces, how powerful just tiny things like that can be in connecting us as human beings. It was definitely that theme of small steps
1: and small interventions that I found really inspiring in this conversation, how she talks about following her own curiosities you know she takes us right back to 2013 when she began you know taking these kind of theater workshops and kind of evening classes that were just her own curiosity there was no kind of strategy behind it and she was just learning new methods taking small steps trying something new and small one bit at a time and I just love that idea of she she had no expectations she was learning by doing she would learn a bit of something new some new um, practices and then she would share them with others And engage the impact and then let that guide her to the next step and she talked about how by doing this kind of step by step following her curiosity she learned to really trust herself but it was a real it's been a real journey you know over the past sort of six plus years of just trying something new and small one bit at a time
0: yeah and that that journey to trusting herself and the importance of having that confidence when you're holding this work so believing in yourself and believing in the benefits of it in order to be able to bring people on a similar journey with you but also being really open about she talks about the imposter syndrome that she was feeling at times you know
1: the inner voice saying you know you're a doctor why are you here you're not meant to be playful <laughs> yeah. and it just made me laugh that inner voice really resonating with me and kind of that judgment of are you the right person to be you know inviting and encouraging others to open up to more playfulness um i just loved her acknowledgement of, of those kind of those moments of doubt and anxiety that she faced when sharing this work with others
0: i also found it really interesting what she was saying the, the example she gave of the nurse who came and was like i think this is all rubbish and i like, really didn't enjoy the com- enjoy the experience But actually that not being, that doesn't matter because, you know, the conversation that ensued afterwards, it was, there was an openness, there was a trust that had clearly developed and how actually this can't all be measured, but, you know, she said it shouldn't automatically be discounted. And I think that's so true. There's value within this, like deep value that we can't always quantify. And I think that's really important to hold. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and review as it really helps us to reach other listeners. We're releasing episodes every two weeks, so do hit subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on more playful inspiration.
1: Don't forget you can find us at www.yplayworks.com
0: or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to join our growing community of people united by the idea of play at work, you can sign up to the Playworks Collective on the homepage. If you have any ideas for future episodes, topics
1: you'd like to hear about, guest suggestions, or questions about the work we do with organisations,
0: we would love to hear from you. Your feedback really matters to us, so please drop us a line at hello at whyplayworks.com. We'll be back in a fortnight with a brand new guest,
1: and we hope you'll join us then.